Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, in the early 1960s, Joan Mulholland participated in the Freedom Rides, the March on Washington, the Selma to Montgomery March, and lunch counter sit-ins. It was probably also the most integrated sit-in in all of them because the guy, he looks white, our professor who's sitting there, he's Native American, and then I'm white, and Ann Moody, who wrote Coming of Age in Mississippi, she's black, so we were with it. We'll discuss Florida Businesswoman Magazine. What's interesting about our collection is that it covers a really pivotal point in the history of women's history, in, especially in Florida. And we'll visit the Matheson History Museum in Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Oh, oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. In 1960, as an 18-year-old college freshman at Duke University, Joan Mulholland became active in the civil rights movement. As a white Southerner, Mulholland realized that her actions would permanently alienate her from some of her relatives. Her great-grandparents on one side had enslaved people working for them. On the other side of the family, I think there's a genetic factor in this civil disobedience because my great-grandma on the other side she was a suffragette who chained herself with a group of other folks to the railing at the Iowa State Capitol and got arrested. And her husband, the town doctor in this little tiny town in southwest Iowa, he thought the new preacher went on too long. So he went out and rang the church bell and got charged with disturbing divine worship and fined $10. But as he said, that preacher never went on like that again. So I reckon there is a genetic component to all this, too. Joan Mulholland believes she was first inspired to be a civil rights activist when she noticed the discrepancies between white and black schools. Well, when I was 10, down visiting Grandma in Oconee, Georgia, not that fancy Lake Oconee Resort, but the company-owned logging town with a dirt road down the middle, my playmate of every summer, she sort of, we sort of dared each other to go walk through the black s- section, which we won't say that what we called it, but um, everybody just sort of shrunk back and went in their houses and things when they saw these two little white girls coming down the road, and that was creepy enough, but when I got to, we got to where the school was, it was, oh my, that's really rattled me. It was a one-room shack, never had any paint on it. The door was ajar. You could see the pot-bellied stove for heat. No glass or screens on the window, just the wooden shutters, nothing in the, no grass or playground equipment. Hand pump out front for water and one outhouse. You know, this unisex bathroom thing ain't nothing new. 
And I knew out the other end of town was the fanciest building for miles around, the brand-new post-World War II school for white kids. Now it's the fanciest building for miles around for the senior citizens who used to go to school there. And I just knew that this was not right. This was not doing what we learned in Sunday school about treating people the way we want to be treated. And I just sort of knew, couldn't have put it in good words then, but I knew that when I had a chance to help make the South the best it could be, didn't care about the Yankees, they could take care of themselves, but to help make the South the best it could be for everybody, I would seize the moment. And that came with the sit-ins in 60. Joan Mulholland would become an active participant in the Freedom Rides, the March on Washington, and the Selma to Montgomery March. Her civil rights activities began with the Presbyterian Youth Group at Duke University. We were told one week by the chaplain that next week some of the students from North Carolina College who were involved in the demonstrations in town would come out and talk to us about it. But keep it quiet because administration might lock us out, the police and the rowdies might show up and all that. But they explained very clearly in legal and moral terms about the sit-ins and demonstrations, and then they invited us to join them. So a handful of us did, and the administration went absolutely ballistic. The only thing that kept us from being expelled was the university professors group prevailed that we could stay in school. In the spring and summer of 1961, the Freedom Rides were an attempt to integrate interstate travel in the South. The first group of Freedom Riders left Washington, D.C. in May, bound for New Orleans, but they didn't make it there. The um, bus was firebombed in Anniston, and one of our D.C. area sit-in group members was on that bus. He's in the picture of the folks standing outside it. And so following the teachings of Gandhi, if one falls and can't continue, others have to step up and take their place, you know, like in the Salt March. So students who had been doing sit-ins across the South, a bunch of them came from different cities, from Nashville, from D.C., from Atlanta, from New Orleans and other places. They came to keep the Freedom Rides going. Even faced with the possibility of violence, Joan Mulholland joined the Freedom Riders. My group flew from D.C. to New Orleans and took the Illinois Central train back to Jackson. I claim credit for bringing Stokely Carmichael, my buddy, to um, the South because he was in the group and I was in charge of you know, getting the group recruited. So by then, it was absolutely routine. The Kennedy administration had struck a deal with the governor and mayor. There would be no violence in Mississippi like there had been in Alabama, but they could arrest us on a local charge. So it became fill the jails. At the age of 19, Joan Mulholland was arrested and placed in Mississippi's Hines County Jail. When the Freedom Riders were transferred to the notorious Parchman Penitentiary, Mulholland says it was actually an improvement. In the white women's cell in Hines County, where they were putting Freedom Riders, we were down to less than three square feet of floor space per prisoner, if you don't count the space underneath the low-hanging bunks. And that was real cozy when it was sleeping. One girl slept curled up in the dripping shower every night. 
people were under the bunks, two on a narrow bunk, and the food was lousy. I mean, it bugs in it and stuff. And so getting moved up to Parchment, it was a newer facility, death row, mind you. They put the death row prisoners into better facilities on the farm, but it was roomier, cleaner, and the food was way better than in the county jail. So it was really a step up. But they were trying to intimidate us because it was had a worse reputation even than Angola prison in Louisiana. And you were really cut off. You know, you couldn't go screaming like mad and people hear you down on the street of town. But there were governors and congressmen and when people get out of jail, they could talk to the press and they, they were being watched. And as a Southerner, I knew their game. Initially, some civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr., thought that the Freedom Rides were too dangerous. After the violence in Anniston, King agreed that the rides must continue. He spoke to riders gathered in an Alabama church, and the National Guard had to be dispatched. The mob outside was threatening to burn the church down with the Freedom Riders inside. The folks who had come, particularly from D.C. and Nashville, well, the people who had come early on to keep things going were trapped in the church, and everybody could make, a, each family unit or individual could make a timed call. I forget if it's two or three minutes. Paul Dietrich from our D.C. sit-in group, who had been instantly out the door, you know, with a couple other guys when the bus was burned, he called me because he knew I had a phone very near my bed, and I could answer it immediately, and he said, basically, almost verbatim, Joan, this is Paul. We're trapped in the church in Montgomery. I can't talk, but send more riders. And that's when we got very busy getting more riders going from D.C., from our sit-in group. Joan Mulholland's civil rights activism continued long after her release from Parchman, on May 28, 1963, an iconic photo was taken showing Mulholland and other lunch counter demonstrators at a Woolworths in Jackson, Mississippi. And the picture is probably the most used of any sit-in picture. This guy is wasting this sugar on my head like I wasn't sweet enough, I like to say. And it was probably also the most integrated sit-in in all of them because the guy, he looks white. Our professor who's sitting there, he's Native American. And then I'm white, and Ann Moody, who wrote Coming of Age in Mississippi, she's black, so we were with it. Mulholland remains active today and laments that younger generations are not more aware of the civil rights battles of the 1960s. No, it's still Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, and Dr. King for most of them. But they need to learn that it was students just like them, even down to elementary school students, who banded together and brought about social change, and we ended legal segregation in this country. But now we can see so many more problems that we didn't see then. Immigration, poverty areas, whose neighborhood gets torn up with the interstate highway ramp, food deserts, religious discrimination, gender identification discrimination, all sorts of discrimination that we weren't thinking about back then, and we got to take care of these problems. No.
We spoke with Joan Mulholland earlier this year at the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex in Mims, Florida. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the 1950s, Florida society was undergoing significant change, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. In the years after World War II, specifically in the 1950s, there was this tidal wave of growth and change, especially in Florida. There was a lot of prosperity, a lot of growth, the development of suburbs around urban areas in Florida was really taking off. But at the same time, there was this move inward as the concept of the nuclear family really kind of started to take hold within broader American society. And this was tied in with really kind of national identity and national security issues, because for many politicians and for the general public, the idea of the husband, wife, and as many kids as they could have, that was uh, how we were going to beat the Soviets. You know, the Soviets were working in factories. Here we have the woman who was staying at home. So central to that image really became the idea of what a woman's role was or gender roles were within society. The men went to work and the woman stayed home and raised the family. And this, again, in the 1950s was the predominant depiction at least within the media and throughout society for women. So what you see during this period is fewer women pursuing degrees within institutions of higher learning. In fact, in the 1920s, 47 percent of college students were women. By 1958, that number had dropped to 38 percent. Yet this didn't mean that women were particularly satisfied with this role. In fact, there were quite a few women who were working within a professional capacity outside of the home in the 1950s. The employment rate for women was much higher than it was in decades prior. Even though the number of women who were pursuing degrees had decreased, there were more women actually in the workforce. And a lot of that was due to professional organizations, including the National Federation of Business and Professional Women's Clubs, known simply as BPW. And this group started out initially, especially in Florida, trying to secure working rights essentially for women. So the the women who were already in the workforce, they wanted to secure as close to equal pay as possible. They wanted to secure better working hours and generally just better conditions and more legal rights for women in the 1920s, 1930s, and then through the post-war years into the 1950s. And the Florida Federation of the BPW produced a magazine beginning actually all the way back in the 1920s. It was called the Florida Businesswoman. And this magazine is still in print today, but it was very popular. It covered, you know, what was going on within the different chapter organizations around the state and kind of kept membership abreast of a lot of these lobbying activities and things that were happening at the national level. 
And you have here from the Florida Historical Society archive some early editions of Florida Businesswoman magazine. Yeah, that's right. I've got three copies here that we're actually looking at. We have about a dozen in the archive. And as I said, this publication came out quarterly beginning in the 1920s and was uh, it's still essentially in print today in the 21st century. But what's interesting about our collection is that it covers a really pivotal point in the history of women's history, in, especially in Florida. So what we have begins in 1957 and ends around the last issue we have is March of 1961. So there was a lot going on during this time period. You know, you have to kind of keep in mind that this is the 1950s. And this was not a radical organization. They were not out to overthrow the patriarchy, if you will. But they were much more conservative, I think, in what they were trying to achieve. However, they were, again, pushing for those same goals, pushing for uh, better working conditions, pushing for equal pay for equal work. You see that throughout these magazines. But again, you have to kind of temper, you know, the expectations, at least for this time period. And you can see that this is in one of the opening remarks from a member of one of the chapters in West Palm Beach. And she says here, quote, The time has not yet arrived when women can be indiscriminate in selecting a career field. They will always be handicapped to some extent by the simple fact that they are women, and this fact should be carefully considered by those who seek a business career, unquote. Now, this is in a businesswoman <laughs> magazine, but it shows you kind of the conservative attitude. Now, she goes on to say that women have to sort of act a certain way. You have to be strong, but not too strong. You know, these are sentiments that you still hear women talking about today when faced with the same types of difficulties in the workplace. And moving on, you see some other interesting common threads throughout these magazines. There are a lot of advertisements and a lot of articles that deal with national security. So even though this is something, a magazine promoting women working in a professional capacity outside of the home, they're also talking about, well, you, you still have a role at home as well. So, you know, work in your club activities and maybe have a, a job on the side, but remember that your role is still at home. So they're still kind of perpetuating that idea, at least in the 1950s and into the early 1960s. But they were also working towards really more practical achievements for women. And, and you can see that evidenced here in this article from 1959. And they're talking about an organization called the Associated Women Investors Incorporated. And this was founded in Tampa in 1958 by a woman who came from Boston to Tampa, was interested in the real estate boom. She saw the prefabricated houses and all of the things that were going on, wanted to get involved, but she could not get funding from the banks that were run by men. So what she did was form her own investing group comprised entirely of women. In fact, here in the article, it says that the bylaws explicitly exclude men from any membership in this organization, but their goal was to seek out and provide funding for women who were not really involved in the business, but maybe had saved up a little bit of money and wanted to invest in real estate in Florida. They were securing and backing these loans for women. So here you see on the ground the kind of work that they were doing. And each chapter had different projects. They would do a lot of community involvement. But another thing you see throughout these magazines is a push for civic engagement. So a lot of articles are dedicated to introducing women to politics and trying to encourage women at every level as a voter, but then actually running for elections at the municipal, state, and even federal level, because they wanted women to enact change through these you know, legal parameters. So you see a lot of articles trying to educate women who are maybe early in their career or learning about how to advance their career and, and are part of these chapters. They're trying to educate them about the political system and how to become part of that change to work towards the broader goals of the national and international organizations organizations are lobbying for. As the role of women in society has evolved, the role of the Florida Federation of Business and Professional Women's Clubs has changed. What's its role today? 
Well, the organization still exists today. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the same issues persist that these women were fighting for even in the 1920s, 30s, up through the 1950s and 60s. And I'll show you an example. This is an article from 1960 entitled Women's Economic Progress. And you can see here a little figure. There's a woman holding up a sign that says, equal pay for equal work. And it's a problem that still persists in many, many industries in America and Florida as well. And in this article, they talk about the passage of an Equal Rights Act, which actually came to fruition at the federal level in 1963. John F. Kennedy signed that act in 1963. So, you know, even though there are legal protections, there are still systematic problems for women in the workplace that deal with the equality of pay and other issues that they were addressing here today. So they're fighting for the same, really fighting for the same goals and doing a lot of the same community work as well. You know, the membership back in the 1950s was about 5,000 women. Now it's much, much larger, and they have a much broader reach, and they're still involved with the international groups as well, but still working towards those same goals, still trying to provide professional development, professional guidance, networking, but also getting women involved in politics, which the numbers of women, even in Florida, involved in politics, it's still much lower proportionally than it is to men. So they're still pushing for involvement in in, uh, civic engagement at every level throughout Florida. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. To see the Florida Businesswoman magazines we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She takes us to the Matheson Museum in Gainesville. The Matheson History Museum Complex is the local history museum for Gainesville, Florida and the surrounding Alachua County community. The complex includes the Matheson History Museum, the Matheson Library and Archives, the 1867 Matheson House, and the Tyson Tool Barn. Greg Young, president of the Matheson Museum's board, told me about the history of the museum. The Matheson family moved to Gainesville from Camden, South Carolina in the mid-1800s, and they completed their construction of their home in 1867. And that is the centerpiece of the Matheson History Museum complex, is the home that was their homestead. Sarah Matheson donated the home to a trust with the Electric County Historical Society in 1977 and we opened the doors to the house and to the Matheson History Museum, which is the old American Legion Hall in Gainesville. We got that going in 1987, I believe. Later on, purchased the former Gainesville Gospel Tabernacle building across the street that was built in 1933 or completed in 1933. It's built over a period of time. That building is now our library and archives building. We also have one other building on the property, which was moved there from a location in Gainesville called the Tyson Tool Barn. It's a small barn, but it's filled with all these tools that, you know, craftsmen would use back in the 1800s and people working out in the turpentine fields would use, you know, building homes with hand labor. So those are some of our holdings and that's some of our evolution. The Matheson History Museum's mission is to preserve and interpret the history of Gainesville and Alachua County. The museum also documents history as it unfolds today. 
The global pandemic caused by the deadly COVID-19 virus was first detected in Wuhan, China in late 2019. By early 2020, it had spread to the United States. The COVID-19 pandemic altered life as we know it. Social distancing and wearing masks in public became commonplace. The Matheson History Museum wanted to document the ways in which people in the community were coping with the historic pandemic. Recently, the Matheson History Museum started compiling digital material to create an online exhibit of COVID-19 pandemic artifacts. Caitlin Hoff Mahoney is the curator of the Matheson History Museum, and she played a large part in the creation of their COVID-19 archive. We had to kind of figure out how did we want to do this because we've never done this sort of rapid response collecting before. So we put together some statements that we were able to put out through our usual press channels to try and get some attention for this so that we could get submissions in from our community documenting their personal experiences. So one of the difficulties that we've had up to this point is that we're only accepting digital submissions right now because the museum is closed. So that's been something that we had to kind of think about because we haven't really had that sort of collecting before. But we really wanted to document the experiences of our community during this. This is something that historians are going to look back at. Our children, grandchildren are going to be very interested in, you know, what were you doing during this time? So we've been able to take the submissions that we've received so far and we've created a digital exhibit um, that's shared on our website. And then in the future, we're hoping that we'll be able to expand what we have so far and include physical submissions as well. And then sometime in the future, put together an exhibit actually at the museum, not just online. Another way that the Matheson History Museum has taken part in history as it unfolds is by offering an official statement of solidarity during this historic time of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Matheson History Museum wants the public to know that they stand for diversity, inclusion, and racial justice. Dixie Nielsen is the executive director of the Matheson History Museum. We are all very distressed and concerned about what's going on um, nationally with all of the incidents surrounding the death of George Floyd. So not only did we put up our support statement, but we're letting people know that once the museum is open again, we intend to have a series of speakers to address this topic. So we're not just saying we support you. We want to be a place that people will come to and have their say and feel better and understand, just like in COVID, that they're not alone in this, that we all are feeling various levels of sadness. One of our taglines for the museum is, this is your museum that focuses on you, our community. And we, we want to be that in lots of different ways. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Matheson History Museum was forced to temporarily close their doors in March of 2020. They'll reopen their doors soon, and when they do, they'll continue to be a voice for their community and to share their truths and their experiences. In the meantime, the Matheson History Museum has several exhibits you can visit online. To celebrate the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote in the United States, they have an online version of their exhibit titled Trailblazers, 150 Years of Alachua County Women. They also have an online exhibit called McCarthy Moment, the Johns Committee in Florida. The exhibit examines the time between 1956 and 1964 when the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, known as the Johns Committee, led by Chairman and former Florida Governor Charlie Johns, investigated so-called subversive activities in colleges, civil rights groups, and suspected communist organizations in Florida. The committee targeted suspected gay and lesbian teachers and students at universities in Florida, 
firing or expelling more than 200 people. To learn more about the Madison History Museum and to see their online exhibits, including their COVID-19 community archive, go to matheson.museum.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Please stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.